Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker, and I think I can now say a podcaster. And I'm Caroline Sita, a film and TV critic, and also a podcaster. Hey, two podcasters on one podcast. What are the odds? What are the odds? We did it, Ned, a full year. We did it, <laughs> Joe. Yes, uh, we did. <laughs> we did it, Ned. Um, the way that this podcast that we're podcasting on as podcasters right now works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. That's what we do. And that's what we've done, as you said, for 34 subsequent episodes for one year since we've released our first episode on April 21st, 2021. So today we are not discussing one movie. We are celebrating our anniversary. Happy anniversary, buddy. Happy anniversary. Right back at you. Thank you. I can't believe we made it this far. It is a little crazy, isn't it? It's weird to think about like where the world was a year ago. Mm hmm. I guess. <laughs> Yes. And in some ways it feels the same, and in some ways it feels very different. Yeah, I remember being on a road trip. I think when you texted me or, or called me or however it was you first were like, should we do a podcast? Referencing my uh, my silly Magnificent Seven uh, hotness power yeah. rankings video. You said, now you're a film critic, should we do a podcast? And I was on a a road trip. That was That was when I called you and was like, should we do this? Like, do, like, are you sure? What do you think? I had some ideas. They weren't as good. You had this idea. I think it was a good one. Uh, well, that was because I had had this idea for a long time and had been oh. wanting to pitch you on it. But I was nervous. And then once you kind of put out something that felt like it was film critic-y in a more official way or film com commenting in an official yeah. way, this was ranking the hotness of the... <laughs> <laughs> different cowboys seven. in the magnificent seven cowboys then i was like this is my in to be like haha just really off the cuff this thing i just jokingly <laughs> thought of do you want to start a podcast well yeah i'm glad you did um because it's been a it's been a trip and yeah i was i felt a little at the beginning like why aren't there some secrets that we don't know or don't don't podcasters have some secret talents that uh we don't have and that maybe I they do. Don't have, and maybe they do. Is <laughs> when you're in, they just a distinct possibility. But, um, but nevertheless, I'd say we've been able to do it, and have had some very fun conversations. We've had some very cool guests on, which mm -hmm. has been a real treat. Uh, so I've gotten to like meet some people through that. Um, I've seen movies I knew nothing about. Uh, we've rewatched some favorites. Uh, shall we go through? All the movies we watch, shall we recap year one? Yes. And should we also maybe let the people know that this will be our sort of awards? It's not just an anniversary special. It is our award special as well. That's right. So we'll th after this, we'll tell you a little bit about what we've got planned for today's episode. But uh, yeah, we're going to have some, we're going to have a little contest. <laughs> so the history of roll calling started with Dear Christian Bale, mm -hmm. uh, number one in my heart always. And for our Christian Bale cycle, we covered American Psycho, Little Women, Batman Begins, The Fighter, and The Prestige, all recorded in my parents' basement where I was staying at that point in the wow. pandemic. Yeah, different world for sure. Uh, we followed that up with a series where I brought us Emily Blunt. I don't know if I'd say number one in my heart always, <laughs> but, uh, you know, big fan, big fan. Um, we did The Devil Wears Prada. 
we did a quiet place slash a quiet place part two which was we actually saw together which we saw together and did our only i think yeah. to date in person live recording <laughs> with did. each other and i think decided that that wasn't necessarily we worth hate it so being together well, <laughs> no. we have hung out in person since then, but never to do a podcast. Um, after that, we watched Sicario, Mary Poppins Returns, and The Edge of Tomorrow. Then we, uh, then as as is wont to do if you're working with me, we took a hard left swerve into musical territory to do a special <laughs> on In the Heights. Yep. Uh, no then, particular actor, just wanted to discuss just it. wanted to discuss In the Heights. Mm-hmm. Then we started our Dev Patel series, which started with Slumdog Millionaire, took a strange turn with uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, looked at his glow up in Lion, the personal history of David Copperfield, and then The Green Knight. Yes. Uh, then we did Jamie Lee Curtis. JLC. With JLC uh, with the 1978 Halloween. A Fish Called Wanda, True Lies, Freaky Friday, and the 2018 Halloween. And really then we series. watched Halloween Kills oh, afterwards, yeah. just for fun, you and also I. together, and I think did not like it at all. Yeah, and it has sadly replaced my like entire memory of what happened in Halloween 2018. Yeah, we'll have to revisit that sometime. We'll revisit. Then we did a, a small miniseries, because we covered James Dean, who only made three films in his lifetime, which were Rebel Without a Cause, East of Eden, and Giant. Uh, and then on to Jeffrey Wright for No Time to Die, the new James Bond release. Basquiat, Shaft. Shaft. All six episodes of Angels in America and all 10 episodes of the first season of Westworld. Woof. Quite a lot of many hours. Many hours. Especially because that James Bond movie was like 27 hours long as well. Okay. That's a little, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> Then we, the, just this year, we took, so we took a break after at the holiday season, and we came back this year with Meg Ryan for When Harry Met Sally, Joe vs. the Volcano, Sleepless in Seattle, Anastasia, and our previous episode, You've Got Mail. You've Got Mail. And that was, that was just now. That was just we're caught up. Ago. Yeah, we're, that brings us up to the present. That's our first year. So do you want to tell them a little bit about how we are going to... The lens we're going to use to look back at that first year. This is an idea that is heavily inspired by our friends over at the wonderful Cinematic Universe podcast who do their annual Cuppy Awards, and we are going to do something similar here. So welcome to the first annual, what are we calling them? The Roll Calls. (laughs) The awards where we give out our sort of superlatives for the 34 films we covered in our first year. We have come up with certain categories for our best and our favorites of various things we covered. Uh, So Ned will throw out a category. We are both going to offer up two of our runner-ups that we strongly considered in that category. Then we will each submit our number one nominee. These two nominees will go to head to head and somehow in a battle that only involves the two of us, which were also the only two people who submitted these nominees, we will decide a winner who will be presented with the role call award the yes we be presented with their roll call and roll be call-y? be <laughs> with their roll call and be preserved in the history books forever and hopefully no one will slap anyone in the face although we cannot promise <laughs> no promises if gary my cat gets in here he might slap me in the face and says don't ever talk about my wife yeah he's uh he's he's temperamental <laughs> you never know what he's gonna do 
So yeah, we've got 12 categories today. Uh, I think we'll we'll discover them as we go along. So the first category on the evening is best chemistry. Chemistry? Yeah, chemistry. Thank you so much for picking up what I was putting down. <laughs> yeah, right there with you, buddy. <laughs> really delighted me. I never, I always think of guys and dolls when I hear the word chemistry. Suddenly I'm a... Let's just do best guys and dolls <laughs> characters. Best chemistry goes to Sky and Sarah. Uh, no, the best chemistry. No, Nathan and Adelaide. You think? Uh, no, you're right. Chemistry, I suppose, would be Sky and Sarah. Or maybe it's Nathan and Sky. Oh, there's Twist. a take. Okay, guys and dolls bit over. <laughs> the best chemistry. Who are your runner-ups okay. uh, from the films we watched? So my first runner-up. It is Dev Patel and Frida Pinto and Slumdog Millionaire. Um, oh. I really remember our guest on that episode, Manish Mathur, just sort of being like, oh, they have such good chemistry because they were really falling in love. And that really has stuck with me. It's such a wonderful description of their dynamic in that movie. Uh, my other runner up, I actually went with a trio because I think this is a nice mix of romantic and platonic chemistry in multiple okay. different directions, which is James Dean, Natalie Wood and Sal Mineo in Rebel Without a Cause. Great. One of my runner-ups was I had James Dean and Natalie Wood, but I think you're right. That's a little, a little uh, heteronormative of me, a little um, monogamy normative of me. When there is, <laughs> there really is. You're right. A very charming, sort of sexually fluid three-person dynamic of what's okay. What's what's the like visual tableau that you cited in that movie where it's like he's. Yes, they're like, he has his head, I forget who has, somebody has their head in somebody's lap. And somebody else is like, they're just kind of arranged together in this little, uh, this little trio configuration. And there's this sort of like very soft, tender, intimate chemistry energy going between them. I agree. Um, My other runner up was Jamie Lee Curtis and Chad Michael Murray. (gasps) In that's such a good one. Freaky Friday. Wow, I completely forgot about that. Oh, it's it totally is something that I had not retained from the movie, but in going back to watch it, I was so struck it was maybe my favorite part of the movie. So, for those of you who don't remember, in Freaky Friday, after Jamie Lee Curtis's mother character Tess and her Lindsay Lohan's daughter character Anna switch bodies, Anna, who's the like, you know, sort of like destined to be with the Chad Michael Murray character, whatever his character's name was, is now in Jamie Lee Curtis's body and they sort of connect. You know, when they're switched, he finds he no longer likes Anna. He now has like drawn to Tess and they have this little date in a coffee shop ending with her like riding off on the back of his motorcycle where just the sparks were flying and... All the more so because of how sort of forbidden it was. So yeah, that was that was one of my runner-ups. I feel like we were pitching at the when we did that episode, pitching a JLC and Chad Michael Murray rom com. Exactly, yeah. And I, I frankly I will I would still turn up for such a thing. Can I also point out for our listeners, the subtext mm-hmm. of this episode will be that Ned has the best memory for <laughs> movies in general and character names in particular. And I do not. So there is a good possibility that Ned will have very deep and interesting pulls from these movies and mine will be more surface level. We'll see. We'll see. This could be full of surprises. But um, so 
who is your nomination for best chemistry? So again, I went pretty straightforward here, but I felt like I couldn't not. So I went mm-hmm. with Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan and when Harry met Sally. Great. My nomination for best chemistry is Liz Taylor as Leslie and mm-hmm. James Dean as Jet Rink in Ooh. Giant. That almost could be another one that's like a weird trio. Yeah. You throw oh. Rock Hudson in there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's something going on between Rock... Well, maybe that's just me, like, writing a fan narrative in my head because we know that Rock Hudson was gay. I don't know if Bick and Jet have that spark Their chemistry exactly, but... might be, like, more fighting chemistry than mm-hmm. romantic chemistry. Yeah, but, but there's something... chemistry there. can mean different things. Sure. Uh, do you want to ta- talk to us about... Do you want to argue on behalf of Harry and Sally? I mean, is there any argument to say? I feel like most iconic romantic comedy couple of all time um a great use of an actor in billy crystal who is not a conventional hottie and yet is like the hottest person who's ever lived in that movie mm-hmm. and just the couple that you are so happy to see get together yeah i was pulling jet and leslie from big really based on one scene in particular when she goes and visits him i mean they have a number of interactions many over the whole span of their life but i think we all felt the sparks are really flying when she goes and visits him in his little shack and he i think makes her tea and this was definitely like a uh, plunging neckline james dean scene you know he's got his sleeves may, or may up not make his... another appearance in a later award category <laughs> yeah okay great great yeah he's got he's he's got his you know just his bottom button buttoned on his shirt and is sweaty from work and he is kind of puttering around the house like getting tea together for her in an inexpert way and she it seems doesn't really judge him for those things and there is this connection with them enough that I think I bought in in that moment. A big part of my viewing experience with Giant, as you might recall, was just not knowing what to expect from the whole thing. But um, in that moment, I was like, so is this actually about a forbidden romance between the two of them? It isn't. And yet that kind of charge lasts the whole movie. Mm-hmm. But I do think... so. The draw there is that it's forbidden. It's not the ultimate couple. It's them doing a lot of work with one scene. But I think that I don't know that I can really strongly go to bat for that over Harry and Sally. Uh, I mean, because so much of when Harry met Sally just rides on their sort of patter dialogue back and forth. And their understanding of each other's rhythms, which I think is a huge part of chemistry. Mm-hmm. It's also a healthier dynamic to celebrate, maybe, then. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, the next scene with Jet and Leslie is he comes over covered in oil and kind of, like, approaches her with this extremely lascivious, kind of, like, borderline rapey vibe. And then and later uh, tries to date her daughter. That's true. Yes, he, that's right. Yeah, no, nothing to nothing Which to is not to deny but. the chemistry of it all. No, but indeed. maybe as a point in the favor of celebrating. I think, you know, with all of these facts on the table, I would could see this one and I would support giving the best chemistry award to Harry and Sally. All right. We'll call Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan to the stage. We'll hand them their roll callie. <laughs> Billy Crystal will take over as host for the rest of the evening. That would be good, probably. I have a couple honorable mentions too. 
please. To shout out. So Winona Ryder and Christian Bale and Little Women. Totally. Who make what I think in the book, I'm okay with Joe and Lori not getting together. But in the movie, I'm like, what are you two doing? You're idiots. <laughs> um, Patrick Wilson and Ben Shankman and Angels in America. I think great yes. chemistry. Another like kind of unhealthy dynamic in the end, but really good chemistry along the way. Agreed, and then agreed. This is one that maybe is not romantic chemistry, or maybe it is. But um, Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman in The Prestige. Totally. Hoping you would say that. Yes. Yeah, that's definitely that antagonistic chemistry, but like, it's it's shippable, you know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Where's the fanfic? Yeah. The f- Oh, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that it's out there. <laughs> if I were to pull up uh, Archive of Our Own, tagged Prestige, I would... Well, let's say I'd, I'd be at least very disappointed <sighs> if there were not that many. Thank you. Th- uh, those those are all great. Um, I have no honorable mentions beside those. Shall shall we move on to let's our next category? Um, the next category was biggest surprise. What a fun category! I'm glad you think so. It was a little open ended, and I second guessed it a little bit. Like, is this too vague? But um, but I figured we could take it in a lot of different directions. Yeah. So and Ned came up with all these categories, by the way. So if you are as impressed with them as I am, you have him to thank. Thank you. So uh, my runner-ups were uh, that in Sleepless in Seattle, they don't meet until the very end. Uh-huh. That, that just, it was such a, I'm sure that is so obvious to so many people who have been familiar with it. But as a first time watcher, I kept being like, what is going on? Until I sort of figured it out. And I thought that was just a really great uh, twist. And it definitely surprised me. My other runner up is how fast and how often I cried during Mary Poppins Returns. Ned, um, my yeah? runner up is literally, quote, how much I cried at Mary Poppins Return. Well, I just think I just went in there with such low expectations for that film. And, and I had seen it before and I was not <laughs> expecting this to happen. Yeah. So that was that was shocking. It was highly emotionally affecting for the both of us. Um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, that that was I didn't see that coming at all. And um, yeah, it, it it happens early and then it stayed strong. So I can't believe we've had overlap on two runner ups already in our two awards. We did not we did not discuss our nominations in advance. So no, this is a surprise to both of us. But I think it just shows we have good taste. Yeah, and it all. I also was like, was I? Did I just cry because I was in a weird headspace? So I went and rewatched some of the songs today. I was sobbing, my friend. I was Damn. sobbing. The Great. place where the lost things go. Ugh. So that's also one of my runner-ups. My second runner-up is also a musical moment, although Mm -hmm. it is the absence of a musical moment. It is the movie In the Heights cutting the song Everything I Know, which is um, Nina's big song in the stage show, a song that I would consider like literally the emotional heart of the show and for Mm -hmm. it to just not be in the movie (laughs) – it was like going to see Gypsy and they just like didn't do Rose's turn. It's like that. What are you? That's what we're here for. Yeah. I will never understand that decision at all. And so I guess that's a surprise in a in a less pleasant way. But I will remain perpetually shocked by that creative yeah. choice. And if you go back and listen to our In the Heights episode, I think uh, I think Alejandro Te is our guest who who did a um, just really explained structurally why that is such a linchpin mm-hmm. in the sort of emotional arc of the show. And uh, they did something different for the movie. So my biggest surprise, this is a pretty conventional surprise, but here come Westworld spoilers, okay? Mm. So uh, skip ahead if if you are trying to avoid Westworld season one spoilers. Here they come. The fact that 
Ed Harris's Man in Black is Jimmy Simpson's uh-huh. Billy just knocked my socks off. As I mentioned, I did know going in that our featured actor Jeffrey Wright was playing someone who was an android, unbeknownst to himself, unbeknownst to almost anyone. He was a robot. Uh, so that didn't... But I felt like I must have known the biggest twist. And the I knew there was some sort of timeline fuckery going on, but the fact that this one character was this other one was... Uh, I, I, it, it had all been laid out, but I, I cannot see myself in a million years having deduced that like people online apparently mm-hmm. did. So that was the big surprise for me. How about for you? So I kind of went in a different, broader direction. Please. My surprise is just the movie Giant. Oh, yeah? A movie that I had just heard about and knew existed for so long, but had never seen and was expecting it to be a real like cowboy Western epic. Mm-hmm. And instead, it is a family drama about history and time passing that I think even in that episode I said really reminded me of the TV show This Is Us in terms Mm -hmm. of like, here's a family across many, many decades and here's how they changed. It was just so not what I was expecting the movie to be. And I remember how mad I was at myself for having never seen giant before because it's so up my alley of things i love mm-hmm. um so i'm so glad that this podcast finally inspired me to watch it because i loved that one yeah i i experienced something very similar with giant and i think as referenced with sleepless seattle i experienced that with a couple movies on here where i just had mis shelved them in my mind before seeing them and yeah it really is it, it just like as it jumps forward 20 years and now there's like big oil tankers and like uh they're chilling by a swimming pool and now they're flying on a plane it's just like that that movie was not what i expected nor did i feel i was able to th- that i was even able to wrap my my head around what i was watching until we were pretty far into its three-ish hour runtime mm-hmm. well i'm glad you agree there i do think though your particular westworld surprises so fit with what a biggest surprise category should be that we almost can't not give it to those yeah it's a it's a hell of a twist i think um i I was as you recall very taken with that first season of westworld and that to me was probably my biggest like jaw hanging loose moment and that is a surprise that anyone which hopefully i haven't now fucked up for anybody (laughs) but uh but if you skip ahead yeah um that is a moment which really i think uh delivers on um that's that's a hell of a prestige it's a hell of a uh, of a reveal so ed harris and jimmy simpson please come on stage please to accept stage. your do some little bits about oh it's me i'm you you're me you know <laughs> they'll do the like mirror routine from uh, the marx brothers marx brothers yeah great um uh, great thank you jimmy and ed uh we'll be back after a commercial um but there's <laughs> so- no commercials I have a very specific honorable mention for this. Please. Which is a shout out to our listeners. I cannot believe how many people guessed who our next role calling actor is based on the very silly clues we gave at the end of our Meg Ryan episode. Not to say that I thought the clues themselves were particularly hard, mm-hmm. but the fact that people listening to the show put even one second of thought into anything we say, like <laughs> we had people tweet at us, we had people email us. Um, all of you are correct, by the way. If you reached out to us <laughs> with your guests, you were you did it. You got yeah, it. Correct. Yes. Um, I was so touched by how many people cared enough to like get in touch and feel invested in who we were covering next. Like I 
truly in a million years was not expecting that. And it was so delightful. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, any other honorable mentions you got? No, that was it. Just wanted to give one up. Shout out to the fans, the listeners. My honorable mentions would be, um, without me spoiling it, uh, what happens in the end of Lion? I just didn't expect it yep. to happen. And that was a, a surprise that was maybe the most, that was like, if we had a category for biggest cry, that would be that. The sash full of jizz in uh, Green Knight. That was a surprise. Uh, the character of Dora Spenlow writing herself out of the narrative in David Copperfield was yeah. a big surprise. And in fact, all of David Copperfield was a big surprise to me. I would also say, okay, now I'm amending another real-time honorable mention. The Please. ending, again, not to spoil, but the ending of The Green Knight, the way that movie wraps up, mm-hmm. was a really great surprise oh, to me. Oh, yeah, I agree. I second that. So shall we move on to our third category on the evening? Mm-hmm. We'll see if we have overlap here. Yes. Um, uh, this is one, this will be maybe our, our our only real negative category of the evening. This is our biggest cringe. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's not. The sash full of jizz, for instance, is a very cringe <laughs> moment, but I think fully intentionally. Um, but uh, yeah. It's just uh, rank movies we do in the future by how many sashes of jizz they <laughs> offer us. Yes. Um, uh, we've got 33 zeros. And one single one so far. <laughs> so um, please tell me what your uh, what your nominees for Biggest Cringe were. Yes. So um, actually, it's the same movies that I nominated for Biggest Surprise. Oh, great. Slightly, yeah, not intentionally. I'm just realizing that now. Mm-hmm. But um, from Mary Poppins Returns, the section with the BMX bikes. <laughs> just like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. I found that so bizarre. That that was how they chose to interpret like quirky lamplighters was having them BMX bike down like turn of the century or whatever nineteen twenties London. I I know we're usually going two and two, but can I say that Please. the the cover is not a book wrap from Mary Poppins Returns, which is when they're in the the music hall and uh, they're doing a number that I honestly quite enjoyed. But there is a there's just a straight up Lin Manuel Miranda rap shoehorned in there. And I'm like, who wanted this? Not me. I found that to be my biggest cringe of that film. Well, that segues into my next cringe is from In the Heights. This is, okay, this is really, to understand anything I'm saying here, go back and listen to our In the Heights episode, because I know I'm getting really in the weeds here. But they take Vanessa, the character of Vanessa, Usnavi's love interest, and they get they try to make her want to be a fashion designer. And they like tie all of this romantic plot to like her desire to be a fashion a fashion designer. And I just found this to be such an example of when on a surface level, you are doing something that's like interesting and feminist and like, quote unquote, deepening in a female character, because now we can say her dream, she has something about her career. So she's a strong female character. But actually, what I think they did is take a character who's very unique and specific and grumpy in the stage show mm-hmm. and just like super original and make her that what feels like a very generic like Disney princess rom-com lead Here's my little dream that doesn't really matter the specifics of it because it's just something to say. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just found that so frustrating and like kind of embarrassing that it ends with like Usnavi should say in, in the Heights because she made some fashions that she's shown him. So yeah. he can't leave. Yeah. Uh, not a fan of that particular adaptation choice. No, we hate lazy feminism. Yeah. My other runner-up was uh, Giuliani time from Shaft, uh, yeah. which is um, the idea, particularly just 
only being able to look back from my current perspective and all of the like all of the things that one of our most cringe politicians Rudy Giuliani represents now and having that be sort of like a badass one liner where a cop in, is beating in up in 2000 yeah where a cop is beating somebody up to sort of evoke Rudy tough on crime Giuliani which was like a whole like fucked up thing as well that was that was a that was a cringe that really stuck with me yeah. and i think i i think i actually ranked like crazy cringy moments when we did that episode and that was probably top of my list there. yeah i think we did so what a strange movie that one was what's your uh nomination for yeah. what's <laughs> your candidate little, for the biggest this is a little cringe? mean um my biggest cringe is scarlett johansson in the prestige <laughs> oh wow that's a surprise. i actually really like scarlett johansson as an actor so this is not a knock on her in general mm-hmm. and i love the prestige but what mm-hmm. really frustrates me is that she gives a not good performance in The Prestige, and it's the one not good thing about the movie. And so I find it especially jarring. Whenever I'm like watching this movie, I'm like, it's the best movie ever made. Oh, here comes Scarlett Johansson with the not that great accent and really not a great character to play either. So sorry, Scar Joe. Love you in many things, but The Prestige is not one of them. She's doing like an English dialect, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not so good. No. Not so good. And she's so pivotal to the plot in like a little key way. I mean, she's not truly, truly big sense pivotal. All you need is those two magicians smoldering at each other uh, from their various disguises in different places in the theater. But <laughs> but she is kind of like key to some moments, and those moments are weakened for sure. My biggest cringe is the – we discussed this at length in the episode and said that it may be based on a – true historical fact that the authors adapting this nonfiction text wanted to include. But uh, Nicole Kidman's, I had a vision of a brown child that I would save and he would save me, like monologue towards the end of Lion, um, where she is essentially, before I adopted you, I had this this vision that I would like, that a, that a, I can't even remember it now because I think like after watching it and discussing it for the episode, I tried to like block it from my mind. Mm-hmm. But as I went back, it came like roaring back into my head. Um, but it is essentially sort of a – it like it, it really makes you cringe because I think so much of the relationship leading up to then is so sweet and the work that Nicole Kidman and Dev Patel are doing – and how those characters are written to like deeply care for each other is so good that you just similarly in a movie where I think a lot of things are working, you suddenly are like, no, why did we have this idea that she had this sort of like exoticized notion of a brown child coming into her life before adopting the, you know, protagonist Saru? Uh, and it just makes, just leaves such an icky icky flavor in your mouth and it's a weird thing it's one thing if the movie brought this up that scene up and then later was like and we are commenting on that in some way and being like oh this is a flawed perspective of hers but the movie kind of presents it with no yeah commentary or perspective nope and i think it does stand out for a movie that is otherwise pretty like empathetic and sensitive in yeah its storytelling yeah really yeah it's it, it really was one that neither of us nor our guest others like knew even just like what to make of it mm-hmm. it just like hits you like a like a truck i think that's a good call and i'm happy i think that really fits the definition of cringe very well so i am happy to award that our biggest cringe of the year nicole oh she's she's not attending today's <laughs> ceremony all right well she would i bet she would attend and 
I feel and like Nicole like, gives us fun awards moments, even if she was a, a you're right, she does. winning a, a bad award. That's right. Yeah, she gave us a great a great face at the yeah. Oscars this year. She's that's the face she's doing as she accepts her biggest cringe award. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Nicole. Thank you. We uh, you know, we don't hold it against you. Entirely. <laughs> it's not you. Um, great. Uh, that is our. It's funny cringe. that we just presented it to the actor and not the screenwriter of the movie who actually wrote the scene. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Nicole. Well, hey, we 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 gave uh we gave Jimmy Simpson and Ed Harris the biggest uh, true <laughs> the biggest surprise. So. I guess we're an actor focused podcast. We so. are, we are indeed. Uh, and with that, we'll move on to our fourth category on the evening: the best sight gag. <laughs> Again, open. Uh, we can define this any way we want. Uh, I'll go first. Mm-hmm. So many fun options here. I felt so, so many. many. This was a hard one to brainstorm yeah. for. Um, the movie that honestly had the most individual sight gags that I was dying to pull from was David Copperfield. Yeah. There's just a lot of really good ones in there. The one that I ultimately went with for my runner up was the creaky floorboards, which is, he becomes a, God, what is the, what is the term? He becomes like a clerk or something. Yeah. Yeah. He becomes a clerk and he works in this office where people that has like distinct creaky floorboards. And as he walks through keeps hitting the creaky floorboards and these like sort of grumpy men like look up at him. So later on when time has passed and he's become like an expert, he just has to do this extremely funny like hop around. So it's just sort of a long shot that has some good physical comedy executed entirely by Dev Patel using his like big gangly charm very well. So David Copperfield's creaky floorboards uh, were one of my runner ups. The other one was, um, all of the bits floating on the raft made out of luggage in Joe versus the mm-hmm. volcano, but particularly playing the sort of portable putting green <laughs> set yeah. on the floating luggage raft that culminates with the whole putting green itself being blown away in the wind and Tom Hanks sort of watching it go forlorn. Um, those were my two runner ups for the best sight gag. Those are very good shouts. I also have a, a David Copperfield a little later on my list, but mm-hmm. first for my runner-ups, yep. I had not a particularly comedic movie, but I think a weird and fun sight gag is Christian Bale's Dicky jumping out of the window in the fighter <laughs> when he's like at the drug den and his mom comes yes. knocking and his instinct is to literally just like jump out of a second story window. To land in a giant pile of trash. Yeah. And, and like then Mark multiple Wahlberg's times, there. right? It's just like, yeah. And Mark yeah. Wahlberg's just like, come on, we got to go to the, we got to go to the match. Yeah. That, yeah. Good. I had not even thought about that one, but that's a good one. This is a bit of a broad interpretation of sight gag because it's really a full scene. But oh, the God. whole scene of Sally crying in When Harry Met Sally mm-hmm. and all the great prop work she does with the tissues and I'm going to be 40 and just all that stuff that's so funny and great. Yeah. One of the best crying scenes in cinema history. I count that for sure. Yeah, that's f- f- great physical comedy runs through that. I call that a sight gag. So my nomination... And I know you hate this film. Uh oh. Probably more than any other film we discussed. But from True Lies, uh-huh. the sight gag of. I was like, what if it's an avatar? No, <laughs> it's I, the last it's just, airbender. <laughs> I, I can't remember a single sight gag in that film. Um, and while I think we really thought Avatar The Last Airbender was quite bad, I felt like you actually actively hated True Lies more. Yeah, you're right. For everything that you're it definitely was correct. and stood for. Oh, and I forgot to mention all of True Lies's 
gender politics as one of my biggest cringe runner-ups because I forgot to write it down. But mm-hmm. but in any case, something I did really legitimately just adore about that film is the horse chasing a motorcycle scene <laughs> that oh sort God, of climaxes in um, Art Malik driving his motorcycle into a glass elevator and riding it up. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger rides his horse into another elevator with a bunch of people in it and starts riding it up. And because they're both glass elevators, they kind of have this like deadly stare down, <laughs> like across the chasm, as Art Malik is on a motorcycle in one elevator and Arnold is on a horse in another elevator. And that to me, wow, uh, like all of the sinister ethics of the movie aside, which are many, uh, that's, that is a million dollar sight gag. Do you think that movie is presenting that as a sight gag? Yes, I do. It's not I think just like this is a cool thing. Well, I think that they managed to get coolness out of that scene, but I think that movie has enough what you would call physical comedy bits that are mm-hmm. intentionally that. You know, the the gun going down the 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 stairs and firing off him yeah. like him yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. shooting as he slides down a snow in a like snow covered hill in his tuxedo. <laughs> he I, those two dogs heads. Together yeah, yeah, yeah. I think those are, I think those are intended as sight gags. And the one that I find most effective is horse in an elevator chasing a motorcycle in another. Wow, elevator. you're almost now making me want to change my nominee to that moment. I guess I'm just sneaking in a, an extra runner up, but that moment where Jamie Lee Curtis is doing the like stripping act and like mm-hmm. falls, but then kind of gets back up and like pretends like it was part of the routine. Oh yeah, that is a, that's that? a great one. Yeah, it's another great part of that movie. Um, but what I'm actually doing for my nominee, this is a very small moment from David Copperfield, but that's also a movie that I really jumped to for this category totally. but if you remember there is peter capaldi as the sort of al- always on the verge of abject poverty uh character who's perpetually getting his things taken back by debtors mm-hmm. people coming to collect debts and there's this one scene they're just literally like they'll reach in the window and pull something out or pull under the door and they're pulling this rug under the door but there's a baby and like a baby in a, like a high chair sitting on the rug and so all of a sudden this baby just starts scooting along the floor like out of frame i have to be like oh no 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 and like grab the baby before the rug gets taken and i just found that so funny it's so funny uh that that is uh, the runner of like mr micawber's debtors like seizing parts of his property. (laughs) I did. Uh, Yes, it's a great runner. It's a great recurring sight gag. It creates these extremely funny scenes. And that I think is probably the like funniest, maybe because it's the most alarming and uh, and hyperbolic (laughs) of them. Um, Yeah. And just because like all of the maybe like negative feelings we have towards, towards True Lies, I have such overwhelmingly positive feelings towards David Copperfield, which is one of the things I really want to emphasize today. Uh, I will totally concede that to Mr. McCauber's debtors and the baby being taken out with the floor rug. Uh, so gag. So let's have up Peter Capaldi. Peter Capaldi and the baby. And his big poofy hair. And his big poofy hair. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the baby, or, who's probably now what, like a seven-year-old? I the the date of that movie is gone from my head, so I'll take your word for it. Uh, some uh, runners up that I had, I had the Mr. Micawber's debtors. I had uh, there's just a moment where I don't even remember the context, but um, the character of Dora just like hits 
Dev Patel in the face with flowers. Like she just mm-hmm. chucks a bouquet at him and he just reacts. That was really fun to me. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis does a sort of a backflip over a couch in Freaky Friday yeah. to avoid yeah. kissing Mark Harmon. That's quite good. And uh, the visual of Patrick Bateman running down the hallway, naked, covered in blood, <laughs> with just a chainsaw and tennis shoes, that's that's a runner-up yeah. sight gag for me. My runner-up, I wrote down everything in A Fish Called Wanda. Yeah. Because the thought of having to pick one specific thing was so overwhelming, I mm-hmm. just had to put it in its a separate category of just like two-hour-long sight gag. Yes, yes. Filled, filled with sight gags, that one, many of which are great. So let's move on to our best monologue category. Um, best monologue. And uh, do you want to start us off with your runners up? Mm-hmm. This was a fun category, by the way. I really liked thinking about this one. Yeah, I found it kind of hard. I was like, I was looking through the titles being like, I can't remember what was a monologue and what was just individual scenes. So Sure. Yeah, but uh, but they are a lot of good moments. But yeah. yeah, hit us with some. So what I settled on was, and this is a little bit nonspecific, because I'm not sure if there's one, you know, it's only one monologue, but I went with the part in You've Got Mail, which I think a lot of the letters, the email sort of functions as mm-hmm. monologues, because we're hearing them read aloud. But there's a particular one where Kathleen Meg Ryan's character is hanging ornaments on her Christmas tree and like discussing a Joni Mitchell's, the Joni Mitchell song River and oh, yeah. how much she misses her mom that I think is just beautiful. Um, there's also that, I think it's a separate monologue, but the one where she says, like, we're more inclined to talk about nothing than something, but all these nothings have meant, you know, more to me than. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of, I guess, just like a general nod to all of You've Got Mail, but that Christmas Many one in particular uh, sticks with me. Yeah. Next runner-up, I very strongly considered my t- making it my nominee, mm-hmm. and maybe I should have, um, but it's the Huey Lewis and the Lou's hip to be... Huey Lewis and the News Hip to be Square murder scene from American Psycho. Mm-hmm. That's just Christian Bale monologuing about the <laughs> artistic merit of Hip to be Square while getting uh, ready to murder Jared Leto, which like, what is there not to love about that entire sequence? Yes, uh, that's a great one. I also uh, had a runner up from American Psycho, uh, but it was Patrick's um, compassionate monologue. We have to provide food and shelter for the homeless and oppose racial discrimination and promote civil <laughs> rights while also promoting equal rights for women. We have to encourage a return to traditional moral values. Most importantly, we have to promote general social concern and less materialism in young people. I forget he like, talk about ending apartheid. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. that, that very cynical Good monologue one. delivered, you know, that to me is one of the great moments of all the, all the parts of that movie that I describe as it being like an impression of a human being. And my other runner-up uh, was Harry Albright uh, confessing his love. Aww. No, Harry Burns. I'm sorry. Yes. Harry Burns. Well, maybe maybe he'll take her last name after they get married. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they're progressive. We don't know. Um, but Harry's, uh, I came here tonight. not because I'm lonely. It's not because I'm lonely. It's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize who you want to, I didn't look this one up, but when you realize you want to spend, spend the rest, the rest of your, of your life, life with, someone, with someone, you want the rest yeah. of your life to begin as soon as possible great monologue filled with specifics uh as we discussed from like specific references to mm-hmm. meg ryan sort of like built out of what they had built in making that movie just a great love monologue that's such a good call i can't believe i didn't think of that one and what's your con- what's your contender well i'm curious if it'll be the same one as you i have nominated the iconic cerulean sweater speech from the double <gasps> oh my gosh which is meryl streep 
explaining to Anne Hathaway that while you think you may be immune to the fashion, the cerulean sweater, the blue sweater you're wearing was picked out of this this catalog and this designer and da 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 it gets filtered down to what you pick up out of a bargain bin, whatever it is, a monologue that I just feel like it could be applied to so many aspects of culture and life mm-hmm. and perfectly delivered. Mine is Meryl. not the same choice. Astoundingly, and this is what's so fun about doing this episode. Astoundingly, that just didn't even occur to me. My choice was the I Hate America, Lewis uh, monologue from Angels in America. Mm. The one that includes the metaphor about, uh, so this is Jeffrey Wright as Belize, um, essentially chewing out Ben Shankman and chewing out the whole, all of the hypocrisy uh, of the entire institution of the, of the United States of America. And the, um, his line about a... Uh, the white cracker who wrote the national anthem put the note free and put the word free on a note so high no one can sing it. That was intentional. A really great distillation. There's a lot of build up to that, but a great distillation of, I think, some of the bitterness about the sort of American lie that mm-hmm. uh, that Tony Kushner channels into that play. Kind of a thematic match for your American Psycho poll. Sure. Yes. Yeah, there is some There is some similarity there. And uh, I would say both of these monologues um, tend to just pop up about every nine months somewhere on Twitter. Sure. You get a viral clip of them because something in the news has made them relevant and people share it around and say, this fucking monologue fucking gets it. Mm-hmm. Um, damn. I do just love Cerulean, though, so much. And it kind of is like... It kind of is like you get the whole movie like boiled down. Yeah. You can see everything that movie is starting with and everything it's building to and everything that makes uh, the character of Miranda Priestly so great in that monologue. So I am inclined to give it up to Cerulean. I'm also inclined to go with that. I great. just think it really sums up it, – it also sums up a defense of things that get written off as just being like feminine and unimportant. Mm-hmm. You know, in that case, it's specifically the fashion industry, but I think that idea could apply to rom-coms in general or really anything that's just like, oh, this is silly and people don't care about it because it's for girls. Like, I think breaking down all the things that go into it, it's just like that becomes relevant to so many different aspects of culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great monologue for that reason. And for that, I would love to have Meryl up to the stage. Meryl, another great awards person. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the the, the bit where... Anne Hathaway and Emily Blunt, like, joke about her yeah. being pissed, and she just, like, deadpans it. Yeah. Extremely good. Let's have all three of them come up to accept. Ladies, come on up to the stage. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, best monologue goes to Miranda Priestley's cerulean monologue. My honorable mention here is not a full monologue. Mm-hmm. It is just a single line that, like, maybe changed my entire life when I heard it and I haven't stopped thinking about it since. Yeah. Which is... Um, Patrick Wilson saying to Ben Shankman in, which is Joe Pitt saying to Lewis, those are their names, right? In mm-hmm. Angels in America, you believe the world is perfectible, and so you find it always unsatisfying. That was a line that he said that, and I was like, wow, it's like it was being spoken to me, and every corner of my heart has been <laughs> broken down. <laughs> yeah. And I have been personally attacked by Tony Kushner. Yep, really haven't stopped thinking about that line since I heard it in that film yeah uh my honorable mention would be in basquiat benicio del toro has a monologue where he tells the story of john henry 
which is just a like a an American tall tale that I've always really enjoyed. And I think he talks mm-hmm. about fame. Not quite as impactful in the the course of the whole movie, but it's a good charismatic monologue. It's a good like long steady cam walk and talk. Uh check it out on YouTube. So shall we go on to our next, our sixth, and maybe our silliest category? I might even say, are you watching closely? Are you watching closely? This is the best magic trick category, which uh, I just put in here so that there was no possibility <laughs> of us going through this awards without shining some light on the prestige, a near-perfect film. Uh, so- it does feel like really just summing up what it's like to have Ned as a collaborator is that... <laughs> I, it's no surprise in the world when I opened up your list of like a hundred different ideas and one of them was <laughs> best magic trick. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I love magic tricks and I love the prestige and we should be talking about it. Um, although I did go with one non-prestige runner up here and that was uh, the Green Knight's head. I count that as a magic trick. He gets oh, his head cut off and then he yeah. picks it up and the head talks and he says, one year hence. Um, which is a great fun moment Uh, I just love the look of the whole Green Knight so that was one of my runners ups (laughs) Um, the other runner up I had was the spring loaded bird cage into the sleeves of the tuxedo suit from uh, the prestige which is there's like they have a sort of runner about how doing a like a a bird cage crush like a disappearing bird cage thing involves like killing a bird and then Robert Angiers is ingenieur, cutter, carver, mm-hmm. hatcher, I think it is cutter. something. Uh, uh, cutter uh, creates one sort of steampunky thing that you wear as a vest and which like sucks the birdcage kind of like a spring-loaded trap into his sleeves, which itself is then sabotaged by a vengeful Alfred Borden in, in a grisly way. That one's fun because you see him getting into the like waistcoat of it all, and there's just a lot of little like knobs to turn and tensions. You're you've seen a yes. lot of behind the scenes of that trick. Yes, I think Michael Caine has to like clockwork, like mm-hmm. like fix yeah. him into it, like like crank it up. Yeah, I actually went with two non prestige runner ups because I wanted to spread the wealth. A Great, little bit. please. This one also is kind of a gripe. Um, it is Andy Anne Hathaway's character getting an early copy of the final Harry Potter book in The Devil Wears Prada, <laughs> which just, it could not happen. I get the point of it is that it's an impossible task that it's impressive she pulls off, but like they needed to have picked a different task because there's that just wouldn't have happened. I love that interpretation of the prompt for best magic trick. It is not discussed that way in the film, but yes, that is a magic trick. That a it's just- just impossibility what's his name the mentalist just as like yeah i can get it for you they're just being passed around (laughs) the literary community i'll just like print out a couple other copies it's not a big deal at all yeah magic trick my next runner-up arguably is a sight gag but again i wanted to spread the wealth Mm -hmm. this is if you remember a scene that walls our guest walls trimble and i both lost our mind over in a fish called wanda which is when kevin klein's character is going through security like a metal detector at the airport he has a gun in his pocket and he takes the gun out and kind of throws it as he's walking he throws it over the side of the metal detector as he's walking through and like very seamlessly catches it so that the gun itself never goes through the metal detector and it is just that really cool sleight of hand yeah sleight of hand that's a magic trick i count it Mm -hmm. that's legit so my uh, candidate is specifically mm-hmm. Robert Angiers' first incarnation of the transported man illusion. Mm. So we get three transported man illusions. The three first transported which, men, if you will. Three transported men. The first of which, as our prestige heads out there will recall, is <laughs> Alfred Borden's amazing but totally uncharismatic, unshowman-like 
transported man where he goes into a door and appears out the other one. And Cutter says he's using a double. Uh, but it's basically like, it says it's the best magic trick I ever saw, but he didn't dress it up. The third transported man is the one that is done with the help of a highly unethical magical cloning yes. device from uh from Nikola, Nikola Tesla. Tesla. But the second one is the one that Robert Angiers, Hugh Jackman's <laughs> character, does with the assistance of a sort of local actor drunk named Mr. Root, who resembles him and is in fact also played by Hugh Jackman. And that is the one which has all the showmanship. It has a drum roll. It has him opening a door, like Kevin Klein, tossing a top <laughs> hat into the air, sliding on his beautiful little tuxedoed slippery shoes into the door and appearing out a door on the other side and catching the top hat, which is And done. kind of looking like delightfully surprised. Yes. When yes. he goes through. And that is the moment where that to me is like, it. it isn't yet to the part of the movie where like he's done something unbelievable but kind of very grim it's just a really good really good pre presented magic trick and they do it several times because it starts to degrade mm -hmm. um you see it as it's being rehearsed you see it as it is performed correctly you see it as it is being slightly fucked with by root and you see it when it has been entirely sabotaged by borden who removes like the crash pad to break Andrews' legs and comes up himself to turn it into a completely different trick. That is my contender for best magic trick. What's yours? Okay, well, this is fun because you picked an Angier trick and I picked a Borden trick, Great. being the Christian Bale girl that I am. This is the scene where he is in prison. He has a little ball in his hand and he is talking to a guard and he's like, one day I'll just disappear. And he does a trick and it's the ball for a second looks like it disappears. And then he like messes up the trick and drops it. Mm -hmm. And the guard is like, ha ha, you're such an idiot. And he bends down to pick up the ball. But what is the actual trick? It's that he has freaking like locked the guard in <laughs> to the little, to the little chains that they have at the prison. And then the guard's stuck. And you're like, whoa, while we were looking left, he's looking right. He fooled us with a fake mess up magic trick to actually trick the guard. And I just love that little scene. It's great because it happens in a non-magical context. And because, as you just said, it follows the structure of a magic trick as laid out. The three-act structure of a magic trick as laid out in the beginning of that movie. It has the promise, the turn, which mm -hmm. is him appearing to fumble, and the prestige. When you actually deliver something bigger and better than expected. Yeah. Can I suggest Please. something? What if we did a tie to represent both sides <laughs> of the prestige? I am very happy uh, in discussing this wonderful movie about a highly well-matched rivalry between two sexy turn-of-the-century magicians. Really three, if you Really three, if it. you think about it. To say that this one is an unresolvable tie. Hugh, Christian, come on up and accept <laughs> your shared award for Best Magic Trick. Oh, they should do another movie together. Yeah, they totally should. It could be about... I don't know. I just, <laughs> this one's so good. <laughs> Magicians in the 1920s instead. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move it on to our seventh category in the evening. Best villain. Another one where I had, I had runner ups and honorable mentions. I won't even mention here. It's a crowded field because a lot of mm -hmm. movies have villains, but uh, who were your runners up? So I went with Rasputin and Anastasia, mm -hmm. which I think as we discussed in that episode, not a really integral part of that movie, but just such a fun bit of animation and voice performance. And he's got a fun song. 
And uh, yeah, I think just like a real iconic animated villain. My other runner up, mm-hmm. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie True Lies. <laughs> Ooh, I like Not a it. character the movie sees as a villain, but I would say arguably if you are kidnapping, uh, emotionally abusing your wife for some weird sense of we need to save our marriage. Maybe you are a villain, sir. Maybe you are. I uh, I support that wholeheartedly. Uh, as as I sort of alluded to in in the cringe, like the when it gets to the scene where she's being held in this interrogation cell, and I mean having her, having her like strip for him is already like a little weird, but like could maybe be put over in like I don't know verboten foreplay territory. But by the time she is like having like a full on mental breakdown in a cell offering to like ruin the rest of her life just to save him and he's sitting her being like ah she does love me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's the most toxic uh relationship i can picture uh, yeah that's true so. and i guess i'm not here trying to say arnold schwarzenegger the actor is villain no but unlike ned i couldn't remember the character's name so i did just listen to arnold schwarzenegger uh, it's harry trasker harry oh, harry God. tasker of course of course of course um, my nominations were, uh, my, my runners up were Peoples Hernandez, mm-hmm. uh, Jeffrey Unsurprisingly. Wright, just, um, uh, totally let loose off the chain wild Jeffrey Wright. I think one of the, of his performances, the one where we see him like get to indulge his kind of craziest impulses. And I think probably like the only truly still entertaining part about that movie. I'm kind of surprised that wasn't your official nominee, actually. So I'm excited to see mm-hmm. where the list goes from here. Uh, and my other, I wasn't sure about this one, but my other runner-up, I went with um, uh, the Sicario, Benicio del Toro. Uh, oh, sure. Complex. Has pathos, we understand. You know, like in a slightly different movie, he would just be the hero. He's getting mm-hmm. revenge on the people who uh, like murdered and tortured his family. But because I think it like, is interested in a sort of a political reality, like him doing these things and like sort of leaving a whole trail of bodies, including arguably innocent bodies along the way is really grim. And it does, you know, the movie does end with him coming into Emily Blunt's house and being like, I don't like this stuff any more than you do, but if you tell anyone, we will kill you horribly. Josh Brolin is also a good villain in there, but. I was just going to say a credit to that movie that because it's anchored in the Emily Blunt's character point of view, mm-hmm. it allows us to see Benicio as more of a villain than we would if he was the just the straight up anti-hero protagonist. Indeed, which I think is what he becomes in the second film, I which think so nobody too. has recommended, I see. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, something about the way he just like folds up his coat before going on the mission in Juarez in the beginning. I just, I think that's a great performance of a great actor. Mm-hmm. Well, my official mm-hmm. nominee for this category is coming on up with his chainsaw. It's Patrick Bateman in American Psycho. Mm-hmm. I think such a great half comedic, half genuinely terrifying sort of takedown of not just toxic masculinity in general, but this very specific entitled Wall Street bro type of toxic masculinity that I think the movie was pretty ahead of its time in in critiquing as specifically as it did. Um, And just such a great mix of Mary Heron's direction and uh, Christian Bale's performance to just make that wackadoo character (laughs) make sense in a both comedic and like villainous way. Mm -hmm. I went in a very different direction. 
mm-hmm. and I went with Miranda Priestley as my best villain. I mean, also a good choice. It, 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 and that is, you know, to be clear, like, she is not a villain at all in the same way that a Patrick Bateman figure is. She is the kind of villain whom we come to understand. We come to see, like, the sort of, like, quiet abuses in her own life that might have made her the way she is. Uh, and there, you know, the movie ends with a sort of acknowledgement of her. But she's a great villain to put on screen because she is a hyperbolic version of a villain whom we have all known in our lives, which is an mm-hmm. abusive boss. Uh, and it's, she's probably by a strong mile, the one of the best and most iconic abusive bosses ever put on screen. Yeah. So, and just her like, her, her montage of coming in and saying, I need that paper that I had in my hand yesterday, or <laughs> I, I think she's really great. But I, I, Patrick Bateman was one of my honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. It's it's tricky because yeah, as we discussed, he's the he's the protagonist theoretically, but he is a chilling villain. And as we discussed in that episode, in spite of how many laughs there are in that film, um, the horrors are blood chillingly horrifying mm-hmm. that he sort of perpetrates there. And as you say, like in a way that is always filtered through the lens of like all the cultures that he embraces and styles himself after they are both performances that like you can't really imagine a different another actor having given these same takes right like only meryl could have given us that version of miranda Priestley that has become so iconic and Mm -hmm. i think only christian bale could have given us that version of patrick bateman that has become so iconic this is hard yeah this is actually the hardest one for me to pick a winner of Mm -hmm. by far because i was like in a sense patrick bateman is more villainous because he does worse things, you know, he murders people as opposed to just bullying right. them and betraying them. But, but you know, they both, they're both, I think, really interestingly complicated characters. We see yeah. his, like, his, like, fear and confusion at the world. You know, it's just so interesting to be seeing things through his perspective as the follow character. I, I'm wary of <laughs> just making everything a tie, mm-hmm. but, like, there is part of me that feels like they both deserve to be in the canon in equal ways mm-hmm. yeah it's not quite a it's not quite the same kind of tie as the last one it's more this is more of a stalemate situation yeah maybe that is it um but i'm happy to do that because frankly like this is not a real award show and uh the, the points are made up etc well, et plus meryl and christian are already here at the awards so we might as yeah, well bring them back right. on stage to accept together oh yeah that's right they come up each carrying their other roll call awards they take the one of those pictures like people do uh-huh. after the Grammys where you're holding all of your yeah, awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So congratulations to our, our stalemate tie. Uh, the jury was completely deadlocked at 1-1 <laughs> on Miranda Priestley. And really Bateman. just two fully iconic villain Absolutely. performances, I would say. Absolutely. My honorable mentions mm-hmm. were, I just had two. They were both actually from Batman Begins, but both Liam Neeson and Killian Murphy, yeah. I think, are really fun antagonists in that movie. I really think they are. And I think... I'm a huge fan of the way that even though they are playing less iconic, you know, that's really like your only, that's your only Ra's al Ghul and your only Scarecrow in live action Mm. film to be compared to your 12 million jokers, jokers, your two Riddlers, your two two Two-Faces, etc. They're less iconic Batman villains, but they're great Batman villains and they're realized really well. My... Shoutouts were uh, Michael Myers, 
I just feel like you've sure. got you to rep the big you guy. you got to. Yeah, you're right. We can't have done two Halloween movies and not shout out yes. Michael Myers. Although what you said about how with Patrick Bateman and Miranda Priestley, like you can't see any other actor playing that role. Not really the case <laughs> of Michael Myers. You True. Know? Clearly, like, uh, he's been played by a number of different people. Um, the, you know, the original performer, I think, gets some credit. The, the original performer, whose name is completely off my mind, who Brian Muldoon is shouting at the podcast right shouting now saying, at it's podcast. obviously this guy <laughs> castle something maybe nick yeah castle? nick castle maybe oh, i'm proud of myself now so yeah that was impressive uh but you know after he creates the language uh, any big guy could give you michael myers but the other yeah. one was robert angier a villain i would sort of argue sure. who even though as we talked about one of the great prestiges of that movie is that he begins as sort of your ostensible protagonist and by the end he has completely crossed the moral pale uh, and is like has like clearly gone so far uh, into a despicable deep end in service of hearing the people applaud. So. Yeah, I mean that could almost be like a biggest surprise too. Mm-hmm. I think that that movie reveals Hugh Jackman's Angier to be more of the villain of the two of them. Absolutely, is not what you were expecting going in. Yeah. So we may come back to that movie shortly when we discuss the best screenplay. Ooh, um, interesting. So for me, my two. Runners up, mm-hmm. Prestige was a runner up for me. Uh, I think it's such a great script for all the reasons we've discussed now, and I don't need to go back into them. But I think it's uh, it's it's filled with really brilliant things. Um, and the other one for me was David Copperfield, yeah. which I think is a really really brilliant adaptation of that source material. Uh, it just takes a whole novel and makes it really feel tellable as one story. It has some very clever meta adaptation choices. And uh, yeah, I just think, as I've said, like one of the biggest surprises for me is how deeply I love that movie. It was not at all what I was expecting. I expected mm-hmm. a very traditional Dickens costume, Dickens drama. costume drama, and it's very much not that. And I strongly recommend <laughs> you check not. it out. Uh, I think I ultimately didn't push that one for my main nominee because for me the brilliance of that movie is also so much in visuals and acting mm-hmm. and costume and directing choices that I think the screenplay is great but it's a part of the whole I also was really thinking about that in in terms of like what makes a good screenplay versus something that's well performed and well directed and yeah. well edited and all those facets um I went with two adaptations from my runners up as well similar to the way david copperfield is like streamlined into something new i went with american psycho which i think takes a book that is again i haven't read it as i said on that episode but i think is less maybe overtly satirical than the movie version became Mm -hmm. and i think that's such a smart act of adapting something to really bring out the comedy and to bring a new perspective on something um the other one i was challenging myself to think of a screenplay not just as dialogue which i think is sometimes what i tend to do like if the dialogue is good mm-hmm. but i went with the green knight oh. which i think in terms of how it is you know there's not much dialogue in that movie at all but in terms of taking a pretty simple like medieval poem and just structuring it into these different strange episodes and bringing these very specific themes to it i think on that level it's sort of an interesting screenplay so I wanted to have a little a little space to shout out sort of the non-dialogue work that goes into structuring a movie. Mm-hmm. My nomination, in total violation of exactly that same thing I said about uh, like, well, maybe if the screenplay is really 
supported by the acting and the directing. Nevertheless, I still think it's a brilliant screenplay. I went with When Harry Met Sally. I think that is about as perfect a rom-com screenplay as I could possibly conceive of existing. And, uh, and that's my nomination. Well, this will be an interesting battle because I also went with One Harry Met Sally. Okay. <laughs> I think it's undeniable. What that movie can do in, you know, 95 minutes or however long it is, like, truly, anytime I see a movie that feels, like, incomplete or feels so long, and but it feels like it never got to anything, I'm like, freaking One Harry, like, think about how real the world of One Harry Met Sally feels, how mm-hmm. lived and how deeply you know it. And how it does that in only 98, 95, 98 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, like just brilliantly efficient in terms of just creating an entire world, not to mention basically just like inventing what modern rom-coms would come to be in the process. Like truly Nora Ephron un- unmatched. Yes. And all the things that we've talked about that we have said about the acting and how clearly defined those characters are at the three different stages of their life when we see them. Yeah. And all the nuances to them, how they have the sort of things that define them on the surface, but as you go deeper, there's just so much to them. All of those things and all the great directing and all the great cinematography and all the great looks, they all start in an incredibly strong script that just starts from a simple premise and gives us to incredibly great characters and a great simple story about how they continue to uh, evolve their relationship. Yeah. And it's a testament to how few rom-coms can be this good with such a simple premise. Like that's a testament to how special One Harry Met Sally is, I think. Totally. I wish Nora Ephron was here to accept the award. So much. I wish that Nora Ephron was here, but we will give it to, uh, we'll we'll call up uh, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. Yeah. And they can maybe our give best a, chemistry winners. Our best chemistry winners <laughs> carrying more more uh roll callies with them um Aww. to sort of toast the memory of Nora Ephron and her brilliant genre altering script when Harry met Sally. I can't believe that was the first one that has been that we both nominated for our top I, I know. I've been I've been enjoying I was afraid maybe we would just pick the same thing every time, which would yeah. have been shorter and I think less interesting. I'm glad we did at least once and I'm glad it was this. I thought maybe that was possible. Um, but yeah, when Harry met Sally, absolutely. We salute you. Uh, we'll roll our in memoriam montage now. <laughs> um, and Carrie Fisher too. Carrie Fisher, uh, everyone who was in um, all the James Dean movies. Yeah, because uh, that Dean was himself. a long time ago. Um, yeah, uh, great. And then we will move on to our ninth category on the evening: the best musical scene. So I, did, I, I wanted to expand it a little bit so that it didn't have to be a, like, a strictly defined musical number, but a scene with music. And I'd love to hear your uh, runner, runners up. Yeah. I mean, I also have a lot of honorable mentions to shout out at the end. Mm-hmm. But for my, runners, my runner up, I went with – so obviously we did In the Heights. I feel like that's an obvious one to pull from. But it's totally. kind of hard to just decide what the best number from In the Heights is. I agree. I ended up going with Paciencia y Fe, which is Abuela Claudia's um, song about her life and her childhood. I think it has such cool staging where she's on a subway and then it becomes this like dance scene. It's a really cool mix of theatricality and cinema. And I will say, I know our our wonderful guest on that episode, Alejandro Tay, did not like the 
what he thought was the overcomplicated staging of this number. Um, but it really worked for me. I think it's such a cool, I think it's such a cool, like, choreographic um, presentation of what is a very, like, simple song. So I wanted to shout that one out. Uh, my other runner-up is Mary Poppins Returns, the little song that Ben Wishaw sings to himself, which is called A Conversation. Mm. Um, but it's where he's just like singing to his uh, wife who's died recently, sort of just like wishing she was there and sort of filling her in on what their kids have been up to and the sort of things that they would normally uh, converse about. And this is like part number one where the tears start flowing. Yes. <laughs> Mary Poppins that, returns. That was my favorite scene in the movie, I think. The one that sticks with the most is being like, that's just that's just a good ass musical scene. And probably the simplest and quietest of all the ones that we are considering right now. It's yeah. just... One little Ben Wishaw in an attic, no choreography, just kind of talk singing gently mm-hmm. to himself or to, you know, to the sort of absent yeah. absence of his wife. Um, beautiful scene. So good. My runners up, I also chose one from In the Heights. I went with the title song, In the Heights, which I think was mm. ultimately my favorite number in it. I think uh, Anthony Ramos does a great job. I love the little like quick cutting montage on his like $1, $2, like that little mm-hmm. like part. That is good. Um, and I just loved that that was the most, that felt to me like uh, they just pointed their camera all over and really like felt the closest to like a documentary moment of like looking at the different people. It's like, there's just a big choral part of it where you're seeing, as I think I said it on the episode, like... Uh, a janitor looking out a window and people riding on a bus and mm-hmm. people like walking down the street. And it uh, it felt like at the beginning of the movie, it did a great job of giving me a sense of place and time and community. And that was that was my runner up from In the Heights. And I also went with uh, Learn to Do It from Anastasia. Yeah. Which, uh, as, as we discussed, is uh, just a really great... The, the music is fun and catchy. It's very snappy. It's extremely clever. It's a great little moment to explore the dynamic between uh, Anya, Dimitri, and Vlad, who are really fun. It's just like the middle of the movie, the movie being the movie, and you get all the great fun of everything that I have said multiple times excites me about the premise of she's the real princess, <laughs> but she thinks she's not the princess. They also don't think she's the princess, but they're teaching her to be the princess, but she remembers it because she actually is. That's all in there. And that's really great. Um, yeah. What are you going with for your number one? Okay. Well, no one is more surprised than me that I am not going with Journey to the Past from Anastasia, totally. which just ended up as an honorable mention. I do think an absolutely great mm-hmm. uh, 90s animated I Want song. Yes. But what I went with was from a movie I had never seen before we watched it for this um, podcast, a movie that I really like. It is the final concert from Freaky Friday. <gasps> Where you have Lindsay Lohan's band is performing, but her mom is in her body. And so you have to have Jamie Lee Curtis off stage, like riffing on the guitar while Lindsay Lohan acting like a mom is kind of trying to pretend to be a cool teen. I think it's such a sweet, um, just like encapsulation of that movie's whole premise and the mom and daughter learning to work together and appreciate each other's point of view and i think as i said on that episode like that whole cool girl rock group she's in like i just want to be friends with them all they're so cool yes and i was just so surprised and delighted by that movie and i thought this was a nice place to honor freaky friday yes you're so you're so right that it like you have all of the comedy of the swapped bodies going on there you also have the collaboration that they earn Mm -hmm. it is a 
like prom is in a lot of teen movies it is the sort of like much talked about climax of the plot like will they make it to the house of blues on friday night Mm -hmm. you're like building towards that the whole time so it is a climax it is a great like how will they pull it off moment it's i I recently watched a video where michael arndt the writer of little miss sunshine talks about endings and he says right before the decisive act you should see the audience if you stop the movie then should say there is no possible positive outcome and this has mm-hmm. that, and then they pull it yeah. off. Uh, and it also has like an absolutely great early thousands pop punk song to it. Mm-hmm. And that is why I also chose that same <gasps> scene. <laughs> you did? I did. I did. And <laughs> that's so delighted. That's going to be our winner for the best musical scene. <gasps> wow. Yeah. I, did, I can't believe it. I couldn't believe it either because we watched multiple actual musicals. And, yeah. and that had lots of other good numbers. I, I wanted to nominate or uh, some runner ups yeah. for me. Uh, I thought 96,000 in terms of just traditional musical mm-hmm. staging, just like a bunch of people dancing was really great in In the Heights. And then let's say everything else in Anastasia <laughs> it was because I think they're all great. But you know that I really like the quiet um, reprise of Learn to Do It. Yeah. I were of uh, Journey to the Past. Um, yeah, those, those, those would be my runner ups. So I had a couple more. I think Jai Ho from Slumdog Millionaire. Oh, of course. Right. It's so charming. I rewatched because I was remembering it being, I think at the time we were like, you know, obviously Dev Patel is not a trained dancer. We were unimpressed. But rewatching it, I was like, they pull it off with the charm alone. Like, it's not about the dancing there. It's about the catchiness of the song and how gosh darn charming those two actors are. Yes. Um. So a real bop. Uh, I also wanted to shout out the Christmas carols and Little Women. There's just multiple scenes of them walking around singing Christmas carols or at a piano singing Christmas carols. And I find those scenes so sweet. And I think of them every year when I sing Christmas carols with my family. Mm-hmm. There is a part in Joe versus the Volcano. It's before the scene you shouted out where he is on where he's playing golf on the luggage. It's just him dancing. And it's like, come, 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 come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's just kind of dancing around. And that's the part of the movie where it's like really hitting its groove for me. Mm-hmm. And then last, and I kind of did consider making this my nominee, but the Surrey with the fringe on top scene from When Harry Met oh, Sally. Yeah. Oh, that's a great. That would, be, that would be a swerve. But man, that is such a terrific scene. It's so funny. And how it goes from being so funny and silly to so emotionally devastating when his ex-wife mm-hmm. runs into them with her, her new uh, boyfriend. Yes. Just like a really great sequence in that movie. Yeah. And like Billy Crystal just like freezing up and just doing this like absolutely petrified deer in the headlights thousand mile stare while Meg Ryan continues to Keep go. singing. It's really funny. Yeah. All great scenes. Love them all. But happy to call up Jamie Lee and Lindsay. Lindsay to the Lohan, who's kind of having a comeback at the moment. So is she? Yeah, she's a new Netflix rom com coming out. Huh. I think all I heard is that she got a TikTok, but it must have been. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Maybe she and JLC can unite on TikTok is, too. Is JLC on TikTok? Uh, I don't know. Oh. They could. They could both get on it and do a little. If any re- of our listeners Friday reunion. are under twenty six and use TikTok, <laughs> hit us up. Uh, I actually do have a TikTok. Maybe we should make a roll calling TikTok. No, what are we going to put on there? Whatever, we'll figure it out. Uh, Us doing uh, the dances from Cover is Not the Book from Mary Poppins. (laughs) There's an idea. Maybe we can get some likes. Um, Let us move on now to our 10th category on the evening, Best Outfit. A category that I was so excited for. Then I found a little harder than I expected. I did too. 
There's just so many. Maybe we should have gone with the more conventional movie with best costumes in it award, which would be easier for my brain to process. Because I think you'll find that what I chose was like just kind of weird. But <laughs> well, I'm I'm wondering if this was actually a matter of what movies we happen to cover. Mm-hmm. Because I actually really like the idea of like what are the best or like most iconic looks. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I wonder if we just happen to choose movies that don't have as many of those. Mm-hmm. We'll have to keep track well, next year after we do another year if we if we have picked movies mm-hmm. with more iconic looks. I hadn't even considered we could bring back some of these categories next year. We're bringing them all back, baby. That we're locked in. Best we're never changing. We're never again. changing again. That's you know what? You're right. You're right, and you should say it. Um, okay, my runner-ups here were Anastasia's opera dress. Mm, so good. So she wears many. So outfits, sparkly, and she has a very sparkly black slinky gown that she wears. To the I would opera. even say navy blue. A navy blue. One might even say the you know that's probably actually accurate. <laughs> she wears a dark blue dress. You know what? I just remembered I didn't look up a picture of it. I'm sure it's actually navy blue. I can describe it. It's just like a strapless dress, very tight, and then a beautiful like sparkly shawl. And she has her hair up in a bun, and she's got like a beautiful diamond necklace on. Yes. So that's one of my contenders. The other one I went with was really uh, the semantics of maybe I really more mean best costume than best outfit because I'm not so much talking about his fashion choices, but the Green Knight from the Green Knight. I loved his whole look. His whole... That would almost be like best makeup and prosthetics, I feel like. Yeah, honestly, yeah. A category that, spoiler alert, will not be one of our remaining two categories. <laughs> but if it was, that would be maybe a better way to go with here. Yeah, I like his whole, like, I am made of wood, but also armor look. A great bit of design, character design. Totally, totally. A great nomination for this? Not sure. But a great bit of character design. In a very weird coincidence, I have also nominated those two movies for my runner-up categories. Uh-huh. Um, but I went with just with, not with the jizz, uh, what are we, the jizz? The jizz sash. 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 Gross. Um, but just kind of with Dev's general, like his yellow shawl mm-hmm. look, kind of like a marigold yellow shawl that he's wearing when he's kind of going out on his adventure. Yep. And very similarly, I went with Anastasia's kind of like yellowy peasant look. Mm-hmm. I guess I was in the real mind of like, um, you know, you're wearing yellow to go out on your coming of age quest. <laughs> wow. I hadn't thought about the sort of similarities between those two outfits you just mentioned, but they do fit well together. So, mm-hmm. yeah. My main contender, and this is where I really was grasping at straws, I just picked one outfit out of a movie where what I'm really trying to say is I like all the outfits, was, um, but I chose Sally's Autumn in Central Park look, which mm-hmm. is. Uh, like a blazer. Exactly. And is it red? The shirt's red. Um, no, I think she wears a red sweater elsewhere. Um, it's most iconically has sort of a like a round, wide-brimmed hat, kind of like mm-hmm. a bowler-esque, like a rolled-out bowler hat, and gray slacks, and a blazer, and leather gloves. And I think all of her outfits in that movie are really great. So good. And that is my favorite one. So as hinted at. A long, long time ago now, we are finally circling back around to James Dean's scandalously right. unbuttoned shirt from Giant. I would say arguably James Dean's, I mean, inarguably, basically, James Dean's most iconic look is his like red jacket from Rebel Without a Cause. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I should pick here. Yes. But I was just so scandalized by, I mean, he's basically just like shirtless 
but like with one little button, you know, like it's barely a shawl. Yeah. I believe it's also yellow. So yellow was clearly just on my mind here. <laughs> But it just was, like, burned into my brain with how I was just not expecting this 1950s movie to have this, like, Harry Styles level of undressed man just kind of hanging out with Elizabeth Taylor. And I would say that, A, because that look definitely was seared into our minds more than uh, the particular Sally outfit that I chose, and B, because it has more of a palpable effect on the scene in which it appears, mm. basically bringing this whole, all that chemistry that I was talking about, like, that sex energy is not what they talk about. It's just <laughs> in the room because he's there with his whole ass chest and tummy. I don't like, know why out. the phrase sex energy was so funny to me. <laughs> That's the best way I could think of to describe it. <laughs> He the, the the sex energy is brought into the room because still good because mm -hmm. he's wearing uh, that outfit. So I yeah. want to give it up to James Dean. All right, Jimmy Dean. Jimmy Dean is jet rink in our in memoriam. Uh, uh, he can't come up and accept his award. Oh right. But we'll just um, I don't know what send it to heaven <laughs> for him. We're just going to put this in the mail and send it on to heaven, James. <laughs> I was picturing more of like a tractor beam situation. <laughs> we'll just hold it my... out in a beam of white light that lifts Exactly. It there it goes on up. My honorable mentions here were just similar to When Harry Met Sally, where it's all good. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel about the dresses in Little Women. Mm -hmm. Like, I just love them all, but I don't know if one is, you know, most iconic for me. Yeah. But that I, I wish that was just how we dress now, because I, I really want to dress like that all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, then I also wanted to shout out the mech suits from Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Which I think are kind of a cool bit of design. Um, I, similarly grasping at straws, I picked um, Miranda Priestley's, like, she wears this kind of suit with a white shirt and a red belt. That, to me, is mm -hmm. my single favorite look of hers, but they're all good. There's only a million and one places that have collected, like, all of the great outfits from Devil Wears Prada, so you can enjoy them all. And... I want to call an audible right now. I have this impression of Christian Bale wearing a sort of a, when he's in his like, like, um, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? His, uh. Fuck boy stage? Yes, his fuck boy stage in Little Women. Um, oh, do you mean when he's wearing, it's like a, it's, it's like, like a, a purple, gray or gray. lavender yeah, suit. Exactly. And he's got his little goatee. Okay, this, if your special skill is remembering characters' names, my, this is my. <laughs> Your special skill. special skill. Is that like an ascot, maybe? Yes, yes, yes. So, a real 1860s fuckboy energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that that sort of gray lavender suit, I want to give that one a shout out as an outfit that That's did a good stick one. in my head. So we're moving into our final two categories of the evening. If you stuck around to see Will Smith's speech after <laughs> the slap, it's coming. <laughs> I know that I certainly didn't. Uh, well, you haven't discussed it, but I didn't watch the Oscars this year, um, and I, I don't regret it. I, I just can't watch the celebrities be themselves. It's just too much for me. <laughs> God, so we'll have to ask them to come in character to the roll calling, yes, to the roll yes, calls. Yes, yes. Uh, no, they just, nobody speaks during the roll calling awards except Great, for you and I. Just pure silence. <laughs> just you and I. We call them up, they wave while music plays, and then they yeah. go back to their seats. The most fun award um, show. They can do a red carpet, but I won't be watching it. These are, our last two categories are a little more uh, focused on performances. Actually, the final one is not even really an award, just a discussion. But, um, so here is the... Supporting player, you must see this performance award, um, which I sort of prompted as 
I wanted in this moment to focus on some of the people who might get overlooked in some of these movies. People just like knocking it out of the park in ways that are maybe like less sizable roles or the stars may not be so well known. And people who specifically are not one of the actors that we have chosen to cover as part of our series. That's right. We've given our Christian Bales and our Jamie Lee Curtis a lot of shine. And I want to give some shine to some of these other really special people. So for this, who were your runners up? So you had warned me that you were envisioning this as a little bit more smaller character actor roles. Mm-hmm. I think I didn't quite I have a bunch of those for honorable mentions. I did I do think I went a little bit bigger for my actual awards. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can do a a, a breath of celebrating here yes. but i went with uh for my two runners up i went with kirsten dunst and little women mm-hmm. just because like what an iconic performance for a literal child to give <laughs> yes <laughs> just f- pure amy march from start to finish perfectly encapsulates that character and i think sets the bar so high for amy march representation my other one is tandy way newton in westworld and maybe this is even me remembering her roles in in season two especially where she really is central but i just think her performance as Maeve in Westworld is really the only reason I keep watching that show. And I really can't say enough good things about how much, how interesting I find her compared to how sort of uninteresting I find the rest of the show. Like what a great mix of cool, badass lady, but still feels vulnerable and flawed, even as she is also a robot god. Yeah. <laughs> I just think such a great great performance what a great way of putting it i also had her and she was of the parts i had on here the one where i i most was struggling to decide if she was too significant a part for me to uh, be abiding by my own suggested prompt so because you have mentioned her i want to say i totally agree i think she's fantastic i'm gonna go with two other runners up mm-hmm. um and speaking of uh literal children i've got sunny poar in lion um yeah so he's on my honorable actually mentions. a huge part like he is the main character saru Briarly, for the first hour of the film but he's a what like six-year-old kid who to my as far as i know has had a pretty limited filmography otherwise and just totally holds the screen magnetically and just goes through a lot of interesting and complicated setups and uh is really great and the other one was uh gregory diaz the fourth and in the heights um, as sunny uh totally wow from sunny Pawar to sunny the character that's right yes um another great performance and where whereas all of the leads i felt i was like i like what you're doing maybe it's not perfect for me maybe there's some parts i'm not loving it's just sunny i was just like every time he was on screen i was like yeah dude you keep doing what you're doing i'm just i'm just drinking oh my it gosh in. Okay, just picture the two of them and then picture like little kid era Kirsten Dunst just sitting out in the audience in all their cute little formal wear at our award yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, the, the, the kids uh, the kids from Mary Poppins are here. They're not, they didn't actually get a shout out, but you know, <laughs> they were invited because of the movie, you know, so there's a whole bunch of cute kids in suits. The kid from uh, Sleepless in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, Noah Jupe in Quiet in, uh Oh yeah, in the Quiet, Quiet Place, Place kids. When, was, when they were Quiet still Place young. was not represented in our awards so far. No. I thought about giving a shout out to the sound monsters for best villain, but I decided not to. Oh, sure. <laughs> In any case, those are my um, those are my runners up. Uh, who is your contender for the supporting player? You must see this performance award. 
So this is certainly not a small performance, but I feel like I have to give him this award because I kind of feel bad we didn't save this movie for an eventual series of his that we might do, Mm -hmm. which is Kevin Klein in A Fish Called Wanda. (laughs) You know, I think on that episode, we did spend a lot of time celebrating how Jamie Lee Curtis is like secretly so great in a less showy role in that movie. But like you need the showiness of Kevin Klein to make that movie work. I think one of just like the all time great comedic performances and i just wanted to give him i wanted to give dear kevin a moment to to shine here at our award show yes and in a similar way to how i talked about like the the unleashed jeffrey wright that we get to see in in shaft or the like unleashed christian bale that we're seeing in in american psycho you have kevin klein goes balls to the wall in that role (laughs) he is absolutely like giving 110 percent crazy energy to every scene he's in and i do think like really kind of holds the movie together in an interesting way because he's of the four protagonists probably the least likable in terms of being a good person and like kind of does claim the villain role in the end as much as any of them do but uh but yeah he really like watching him like aggressively and stupidly like bumble his way through situations and then like try to solve them with violence is really really enjoyable. I went with uh potentially I will mispronounce her name but I'm going to do my best Morphid Clark in David Copperfield mm-hmm. as Dora. You loved her. I loved her. I ju- I totally just loved her. I thought Did you know she's our new Galadriel in the upcoming Amazon Lord no, of the Rings series? I had no idea. But I'm excited for that. I mean, I think one of the reasons I was so excited and why I so thought of her in this moment of trying to trying to like shine a little light was that I have never seen her in another thing. As far as I know, I had no expectations. She had no goodwill from me. And yet I thought her performance as Dora, she has a small part as David Copperfield's mother, mm-hmm. but then as the sort of would-be romantic pairing who was ultimately found to not be the right one. I thought she was unbelievably funny and made me laugh out loud so many times, has so many good little comic bits, um, is essentially playing sort of like the character you might call like the ditzy character, sort of like an airheaded, beautiful, Mm -hmm. spoiled woman, but brings so much pathos to it that like even as she exits the story and is seen to not be like the right pairing for David. Uh, you just, I think feel so much for her. So that was the most kind of like out of left field, never saw it coming. Absolutely loved her, uh, award or, um, a performance. And Mm -hmm. that's why I went with her. I think that so fits the brief of what this award is that I'm, that I would love to have her be our inaugural, our inaugural winner. Cool. Cool. I feel I she's I feel good about that as well. She's also in this really cool horror movie that came out last year called Saint Maud. Oh. If you want to see more of her, she plays like a sort of a nurse who is a very devout Catholic and it gets very creepy. Yeah, the trailer for that looked creepy AF. Enough that I was mm-hmm. honestly like, I'm not sure that's for me. But do you yeah. like it? It kind of saves its intensity until the last fifteen minutes okay. and then it gets real intense. Okay. Cool. But I did really love it. But I mean, clearly, I love her, so I would love to do that. And I'm delighted to have her uh, win this award. Um, You want to do some some honorable mentions? I'm sure. I have so many, and I'm so happy to to breeze through them. But Mm -hmm. okay, a couple big ones. These are big performance, bigger, you know, roles. Mm -hmm. But like, obviously, Meryl Streep and Devil Wears Prada, as we said, iconic. 
Evan Rachel Wood in Westworld, I also think, makes that show. I also had Sonny Pawar in Lion, who you shouted out, and Elizabeth Taylor in Giant. Yeah. Like, just so freaking good. Um, so those were, like, my bigger mm-hmm. bigger actors. Yeah. Then here I went deep. Once you texted me and said, let's really focus on character actors. Sure. I'm just going to rattle these off because yeah. there's a lot. Stanley Tucci in Devil Wears Prada. Yes. Perfect performance. Kelsey Grammer in Anastasia. Yes. Perfect performance. Emily Mortimer in Mary Poppins Returns. Yes. Just a gosh darn little delight. Love her. Uh, speaking of gosh darn little delights, <laughs> Anna DeArmas in No Time to Die. Totally. Comes in and steals the whole freaking movie. I had her as well. Totally steals the movie. I Now when people are like on the fence about the movie, I'm like, just watch from when Anna DeArmas <laughs> comes Cuba. on screen to when she leaves and you've got all the best bits. Uh, I always loved Rebecca Hall in The Prestige. Mm-hmm. It's a small role, but like it really sticks with me. Um, double shout out to Rita Wilson and Rosie O'Donnell in Sleepless in Seattle. Another double shout out to Sarita Chowdhury and Ralph Innocent in The Green Knight. That's Deb Patel's mom and, or Deb Patel's mom in the movie, the green, whatever, mm-hmm. Sir Gawain's mom mm-hmm. and the Green Knight himself, yes. Ralph Innocent. Then we have a double, double movie nominee mention is Benicio Del Toro in both Basquiat and Sicario. Yeah. I feel like that was a great little twofer. Um, Carrie Fisher in When Harry Met Sally, incredible. Mm-hmm. The very sweet Heather Burns in You've Got Mail, mm-hmm. so funny. Then I wanted to shout out the entire cast of David Copperfield because it was too hard for me to pick a favorite. Totally. And also the entire cast of Angels in America because what a brilliantly performed piece of art, especially Justin Kirk as prior. He was a real standout to me. Yeah. So there you go. Catch my breath. That was my list. Great. I think the only little shout outs I wanted to add on there would be Killian Murphy in Batman Begins, does a lot mm-hmm. with his limited screen time, uh, Ben Wishon, Mary Poppins Returns, and uh, Anil Kapoor as uh, the game show host in Slumdog Millionaire. Great call. Um, those were my shout outs. Okay. So that sort of concludes the, um, I think, debating and choosing winners awards part of our of our evening. The last thing I wanted to do is just go back through the different cycles of films that we have discussed and take a moment for each of us to sort of share like one year on in the case of Christian Bale or one week on in the case of Meg Ryan. What is the movie that is sticking out to you as your favorite? And we're saying favorite performance. Is that right? That's a great question. Yes. Let us say which one is your favorite performance. So not even our favorite movie, but if we're looking at that actor of the five films we've covered, where is your favorite performance in there? Great. I'm so excited. I decided to not pre-plan this, so I'm going to be making my choices live. Let's go based on instinct. Um, starting with Christian Bale, mm-hmm. for me- What a tough one. Ooh. It's tough, but I think it's Patrick Bateman. Um, there were a lot of- they're all good, but for me, the all the things we've said about what made him a like, great villain, what made him a great character, uh, what made it a great adaptation, I just think that he- he goes very big, um, but never in a way that feels too indulgent. It always feels like it is like furthering the movie's goals. Yeah. I, I'm i going to agree, mainly because I think his comedy is perfect. Mm-hmm. And my, my big call to Christian Bale is always, do more comedy. You are so freaking funny. Use these skills more. So, such a funny performance in all of its scariness. Yeah. For Emily Blunt... Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go with the character of Emily in a devil in the Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. Uh, smallest part in terms of screen time of the four, and you know I almost went with Sicario, which I think is just like a great grounded, such a different energy. But the character of Emily is tone perfect. 
every single time she comes on screen. She's so funny. She is so pathetic in in, in the sense of like having pathos. Um, she's just great in that role. And talk about a role she just makes her own. Absolutely. Yes. That could have been a nothing role. I was I was leaning towards that as well, but I think I'm ultimately going to go with Mary Poppins Returns, mm-hmm. mainly because right before we started recording, I rewatched her little musical number, Where the Lost Things Go. And I was like, damn, this is such a challenge to take this iconic role and bring it to life again. And I really think she nails it. And it's great work from her. Yeah. Dev Patel. Oh, Dev. He's so good. All the time. We love him. Obviously, they they all are. Uh, but I go with David Copperfield. Um, I think, I'm going to agree. Yeah. I'm going to spoil my pick and say, yeah, that's great. Um, where my heart lies as well. Yeah. I mean, we've already talked about like so many of the different elements that make that movie work. But at its heart, it is so kind and patient. And like he just gets the style exactly right, which is something that is like... Like, I, I don't want to underestimate how or understate how hard that is. Mm-hmm. He gets the tone right. He is extremely funny uh, in a movie that is like, you know, primarily a lighthearted comedy, but in a way that feels honest. And he just is like, th- like, that's that's as 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 root forable a protagonist as I can think of. And it is the comedy, I think. Like, I do think comedy in many ways is harder than drama. And the fact that these people who are primarily known as dramatic actors can come in and do these pitch-perfect comedic performances, like, I think that is very worthy of celebration. And like you said before, like, Personal History of David Copperfield is just such a good movie, and I want more people to see it. For Jamie Lee Curtis? This one's hard. This one was hard. I also went comedy, and the specific comedy I went with was Freaky Friday, her performance as Tess slash Anna Coleman, because Mm -hmm. I think that the whole, like, we swapped bodies trick doesn't, that whole movie gimmick doesn't play without Jamie Lee Curtis's virtuosic, like, mannerism switch. Yeah. And I think it is interesting to have heard her talk about like I just came out of that movie like 3 days before we started shooting I was <laughs> filling in for someone else I just kind of winged it but she whatever she was doing like if it was her sitcom training her instincts were on she did great and I think she was uh, awesome in Freaky Friday I'm going to then to spread the the love a little bit I'm going to go with the fish called Wanda mm-hmm. which I think I celebrated Kevin Klein's work yes. in our last category I'll celebrate JLC here as being the less showy but still, like, crucial linchpin of that movie. I also want to say, Ned, I think our Jamie Lee Curtis series was my favorite one that we did. Wow. I really loved doing that one. I feel like it gave me an entire different relationship to her as an actor. And, like, I just, yeah, every time now I see her in something, I'm like, yeah, I really feel like I got to know her whole body of work in a in a whole new way. So I'm glad you feel that way. Yeah. God, I wonder what was my favorite series. Maybe I'll think about that at the end of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but moving on to... The James Dean Jimmy series, Dean. Jimmy Dean. I felt like we were watching those performances so closely on that series. Like mm-hmm. really thinking so much about his acting method and his personal background and and the way in which he like existed on screen as this kind of like sensitive nerve animal. Um, that might have been my favorite series. I went with the favorite of Jet Rink in giant Mm. um and similarly i think that it was just getting to see him uh, like go through these different ages and like 
like you just watch such a lifelong arc and it is such a kind of like grim arc as he gets more and more of what he claims to want and just like sinks lower and lower into this like horrible like festering mire uh of like he's weirdly good as an old man. yes very weirdly good as an old man i really like how he works his way through some of his scenes i really like the energy he brings to that and um and yeah i think uh like similarly he's got the the charm the ambition the chemistry the he just brings a lot to that so that was my mm-hmm. that's my favorite uh performance in there I think I'm going to go with Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. It was the movie that introduced me to him. I think I just love movies about sweet teenage boys, especially when you aren't expecting them to be movies about sweet teenage boys. Mm-hmm. And yeah, his like it's just like a really nice guy trying to do his best in a confusing time in his life. I think he plays all that so well. And in that performance, it's really that lightning in a bottle that you get why he became such an icon, even though his, his life and his filmography are so short. Mm-hmm. For Jeffrey Wright's series, I think this was a toughie as well, but I think the performance that, like, if I had to save one of these in a museum, it would it would be Belize in Angels in America. Mm-hmm. And I think that on our episode, uh, when we talked with Will Wilhelm, Will in particular, the three of us were, were able to sort of contextualize a, a bit of what a shame it is that, like, so many of the, like queer characters in this film were played by cis straight people um mm-hmm. including this character Belize with that context in mind as a caveat I still think like the way that Jeffrey Wright works his way through just the way he breaks up his lines in a in a in a miniseries that is so much about language I think is really masterful and I think that like the energy he brings is really just like a really great and it feels it feels like an honest energy being channeled there. And every time mm-hmm. he's on screen, I'm like, oh, good. I, I, I want to see this scene. Yeah. I mean, my favorite recent Jeffrey Wright performance I've seen is in The French Dispatch, totally. which I think he's incredible in. But of the movies and TV shows we covered, I think I'm going to, again, spread the wealth and shout out Westworld. Yeah. Like, yes, he does a lot of the sort of nerd with glasses performances, but gosh darn it he does them so well and like i'll happily watch a little bumbling bernard figuring out uh the mysteries of westworld i think it's such a, a great performance to ground that yeah. show yeah it really is and last but not least for meg ryan uh i tossed these around a, wh- a while but i did come back to sally albright um mm-hmm. i think that for all the things we've said it already getting to see her really distinguish those three different stages of her life getting to really like it's just a great honest comic performance i've talked a lot about the way in which you get to see her see the world and try to fold new information in it's got some amazing comic bits like the incredible crying scene you mentioned it's just uh damn i love i love sally in when harry met sally yeah so much I'm going to go with Joe versus the Volcano, just because I think it's so fun to watch her in character actor mode mm-hmm. there, while also then with her final of the three characters she, she's playing, roping in some of that great rom-com quality as well. But especially those first two little weirdo characters mm-hmm. she comes up with, and the one that talks like this, <laughs> it's just, it's a side of Meg Ryan we don't always see, and I think it's really fun to see it captured in that movie. Yeah. So we've done some fun, we've done some fun pods and discuss some fun performances. And it has just been 
a total pleasure. So the last thing I want to say is um, three things. I want to do a big thanks to our listeners for listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you didn't, we wouldn't exist. Um, or we would exist. <laughs> big thanks. We would exist like a tree falling in the forest. And to people who've taken the time to reach out to us, like email or Twitter or wherever. Like it's truly so nice to know people are listening to the yes. show and, and care that about it. That keeps us going. So thank you to all our listeners and definitely to those who've reached out. Thank you one more time to all of our amazing guests uh, who have just been like, I can't believe some of the awesome people and great conversations we've gotten to have on here. It's been so fun. And can I actually, I got a little list here. Can I shout them all out by yes, name? Yes, please. I wanted to give specific thank you. We've got Emily Marceau, Alejandro Tay, Manish Mother, Adar Shah, Walls Trimble, Pernell Van Dyke Myers, Brian Muldoon, Roxana Haddadi, Joe Cunningham, Jules, Will Wilhelm, Rachel Kenny, and Dr. Sam Summers. We could not have asked for a better lineup of guests for the first season of the Every podcast, one of them a treat. Absolutely. Um, and thirdly, I just want to say thanks to you, Caroline. Um, yeah, just thank you for thanks to you. Ned. Yeah, it's been really fun. As I sort of said at the beginning, like just doing this podcast is something I didn't expect. It's been so fun to do. I love getting to chat with you every week. Um, it has not gotten old. Thank you for helping me like make the logistics happen and uh, just. And by that you mean you do all the logistics because you edit all these. Episodes. No, I just do the editing part. You do all these other logistics and you do all this research, which really makes it possible and. Um, it's just been very fun. Aw, well, right back at you. And actually, on that note, because you were the one that came up with all of the categories for our actual conversation, I did want to surprise you with a few superlatives that I came up with on my oh, own, yeah? if you will Please? indulge me for just a I second. I'll go through them quickly. I wanted to give out an award for Best Beard goes to Dev Patel in the movie Lion. Great. Our our award for Best Sidekick goes to Bartok and Anastasia. Okay, I, I'm not sure about the that, but calling. go on. <laughs> The role, see, this is now, it's not a democracy anymore. <laughs> I see. You're just I see. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> the role for best babysitter is a tie between Laurie Strode and Mary Poppins. Congrats to them both. No both love for the, uh, the Sleepless in Seattle babysitter, huh? No. Or Maureen the babysitter. Lost that kid. <laughs> the award for best list maker goes to Jim's dad and Rebel Without a Cause. <laughs> The award for sweetest friendship goes to Hugh Laurie and Dev Patel in the personal history of David Copperfield. Oh. Love that little friendship. I buy it. The and it's a crowded for- field. We got a lot of sweet friendships in here. Great friendships, yeah. but that one really sticks yeah. out. The award for best luggage goes to the streamer, the steamer trunks in Joe versus the volcano. No problem with that. Couldn't ask for better luggage than that. The award for most impressive peeling of an apple goes to Meg Ryan and Sleepless in Seattle. Congrats to Meg. Meg. The award for hottest scene on a Ferris wheel goes to East of Eden. Congrats to that, to the wonderful performers of East of Eden. Very hot Ferris wheel scene. Uh, (laughs) Our penultimate award is for best use of a whiteboard. And yes, finally, A Quiet Place gets its award. (laughs) Congrats, Quiet Place. You're not going home. Iconic use of a whiteboard. And finally, my personal favorite award, the award for best Ned moment on the podcast. It's what it's all been building to. What is it going to be? Ned, something I think about a lot is when we had our In the Heights episode and you described Lin-Manuel Miranda as the Paragua guy as having salsa hips, but Tevia arms. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that is but one of the many reasons I love having you as a co-host, and I thought it deserved its own special show. That was a treat. Thank you for all those (laughs) additional awards. That was a very fun little surprise for me, and uh, thank you for the 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 award uh, at the end i i'm glad to get this roll calling award this roll callie uh for my salsa <laughs> yeah, you can go arms. take a photo op with all the yeah, other yeah i'll be i'll be lying down in front of them um yeah, yeah cool well thanks carol you're welcome and thanks all for tuning in for our anniversary episode in two weeks we'll be back with our regularly scheduled content and beginning on a new series um as caroline mentioned we dropped some cryptic hints not that cryptic maybe to some of you because some of our twitter followers did not struggle to decipher them but now i can officially announce our next actor that we will be covering will be antonio banderas and we will be starting in the middle of his career with a movie that is extremely near and dear to my heart 1998's the mask of zorro um hell yeah yeah, i'm ready to get freaking hyped up for zorro Because I love Zorro. He is my freaking I was going to say, if you're friends with Ned, you know that Zorro is a big part of his lifestyle. I love him. <laughs> I'm excited so, to share that with our listeners. Yeah, so uh, hold on to your willful stallion tornado because it's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Sita. Our theme music was recreated by Patrick Buddy and our logo was designed by Nick Wansersky. You can follow us on Twitter at RollCalling and email us at RollCalling at gmail.com. If you don't know by now, that's R-O-L-E. Next week, we'll be back with The Mask of Zorro. Until then, we'll see all of our nominees and winners on the dance floor at the Vanity Fair after party. Bye.